The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to be looking at three main texts today. Uh, The first is Psalm 146. So if you have your Bible, uh, it'd be a good place to start. We're also going to be looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And then Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And I'll give you a little bit of heads up as we transition between each one of those uh, texts today. Um, I thought I would just share a little bit about my own development of political thought as, a, um, as an almost 50-year-old. Um, how have I developed my own way of thinking about politics? Well, actually, it started back in... Uh, 1976, um, we were living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that was the 200th uh, anniversary of 1776. And I remember we went uh, downtown one day to Independence Hall, and so I'm five at this point. And the thing I remember is there's this huge Minuteman statue like made out of chicken wire out front. And I remember we, uh, my parents paid money for a little piece of clay that like we would climb up on the ladder and we would put this clay on this to make this Minuteman. And somewhere, I'm sure my mom still has it, we got a button uh, from that, from that moment. Um, fast forward, um, actually just a few months, we were, we were on vacation in Peachtree City, Georgia, which is where one of my uncles lived. And Peachtree City uh, is in Fayette County. So that name Fayette might mean something to uh, historical uh, buffs, Marquis de Lafayette um, of Revolutionary War fame. Uh, Fayette County was named after him. And I remember at the church that we, that we went to when we eventually moved to Peachtree City, they had this big green out front. And I remember there was this simulated Revolutionary War battle um, on, this, on this huge field on the 4th of July, 1976. After we moved to Peachtree City, I remember every year we participated in our city's 4th of July parade. We would decorate our bikes with red, white, and blue, and we would ride our bikes um, all over Peachtree City doing different things. I loved history throughout middle school and high school, so I learned a lot about history during that time. And then in the 90s, we moved to Northwest Iowa. Uh, This is like 1991. And while we were there, I I heard this radio show called The Rush Limbaugh Show. So don't judge me. Um, so I heard this show called The Rush Limbaugh Show. And I remember, like, as I was working, sometimes I was working for Ann's dad. Um, there was a time where I was working for a, for a grain elevator. Like, I couldn't wait until late morning, early afternoon, because what I would listen to in whatever I was doing, I would just listen to nothing but political talk radio. So I would, I would listen, on one hand, I would listen to Rush Limbaugh, and on the other hand, they would always play like someone from the opposite end of the spectrum. And I just remember like hearing all of these political thoughts. And I also remembered thinking for a long time, this is when I wasn't really um, in a relationship with Christ, I remembered for a long time thinking that, that as long as I thought what I determined in my mind correctly about politics, then I was a pretty good person, right? As long as I had the right thoughts and the right ideas, I was a good person. 
And fast forward uh, a number of years. This is in 2003, 2004. We're living in we're living in Sioux Center, Iowa, going to church in Lamar's, Iowa. I shared this story with you uh, before. I don't know. I don't remember what holiday it was. It was probably around the Fourth of July. I remember being I remember being at church on Sunday morning, and like we were singing we were singing praise songs to Jesus on that morning. And I remember because music was. This is the early 2000s, so like there was this big battle over what kind of music was appropriate and what kind of music wasn't appropriate in the church. And I remember that, that often during, during praise and worship songs, there would be people who just seemed completely disinterested in what we were, in what we were singing. I remember there were people that were, that were sitting down like they didn't want to engage that. And then for some reason... Someone decided to play Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American on that Sunday morning. And I'll never forget the moment when just, you know, the, the chorus comes in, right? And I'm proud to be an American. I saw all of these people stand up. And I thought, why is it? Like, what's going on? When we, when we stand up and we, we sing a song like that with, with vim, vigor, and vitality, right? With gusto about praising America. But we can't sing a song about praising God. Like there's this, like I remember when that happened, there was, it seemed like there was this little click in my head that there was something, there's something wrong here. I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. And then a songwriter that, that I really used to listen to a lot um, by the name Derek Webb wrote a song, and it was somewhat sarcastic. But part of the lyrics in the song, he says, don't teach me about politics and government. Just tell me who to vote for. So we talked about that last week, right? When our expectations are maybe you came into this series thinking we're going to give you a voter guide on your way out so you would know who to vote for. Well, that line, don't teach me about politics and government, just tell me who to vote for, was very instrumental for me. It helped me think, like, like I want to develop wisdom to know who to vote for. I don't want to just take it off a piece of paper. Is that what you want to do? Is that how we go through life? See, we want to, we want to develop wisdom. We want to develop our own mindsets and our own understandings of what we believe and why we believe it. And the same, it's not just for politics, it's for Christianity. Which is why so many people in their late teens to mid-20s, like shipwreck their faith. Because for many of them, what they've, they've, they've been constantly told, this is what you believe, this is what you believe, this is what you believe, this is what you believe. And then they get out into the real world and they haven't thought through any of that. And people start to ask them questions that they can't answer. I wonder if that was true for any of you. See, so what... What we want to accomplish, part of what I want to accomplish in this series is, is tell, us, tell us how to think. Not how to think, how to think. See the difference between those two things? I want to teach you how to think. How to take in information and develop wisdom. On each weekday morning for the last six months, seven months now, Hard to believe. I do this little thing on our church Facebook page most of the, most of the week at 7 a.m. where we just read a psalm together 
and we talk about it. And this week, early on Wednesday, I think it was, I read Psalm 146. And I just love the way God works. And I thought this is going to be a perfect psalm for what we're going to talk about today. So I just want to read Psalm 146 to you. You can follow along. Praise the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose help is in the Lord. He made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are way down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. He will be your God, O Jerusalem, throughout the generations. Praise the Lord. So here's, here's what I want, to, I want you to see the flow of this, of this psalm. The first thing is it's about praise, right? It's telling God who he is. It's honoring God, not because of what he's done, but because of who he is. But then, and this is in verse three, it tells us something about, it tells us something about the state. It tells us something about government, in fact. And the, I mean, the word government's not in there. This is where we need to use some wisdom in the way we read the text, but the state here is personified as powerful people. And here's, here's what you need to know. Every government is going to perish. This should not be a newsflash to you. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know that every government, every government, every, every nation is going to perish. And all of their plans with them are going to perish. We talked about that when we discussed Ecclesiastes, right? How the things that we pursue in life outside of God aren't enough to bear the weight of the realities of our life. Have you learned anything but that since March of this year? That the false hopes we've trusted in have simply fallen short? See, the only thing that can sustain is God. But God's not like those powerful people. There's a, there's a stark contrast. The psalmist writes that God's a bringer of justice. And if we were to use some wisdom and go into the New Testament, we would see that we partner along with God in that. So we have a role to play, and we're going to talk more about that. And God's forever. God doesn't perish. His plans are never going to fail. Isn't that good? Like that God's plans are never going to fail. That's a good thing. He's worthy of our praise because of that. So when we get, when we get caught up in this cycle of praising our government, 
going to let us down. It's going to fall short. And God doesn't do that. And in Psalm 146, we see a distinction of jurisdictions. We see a distinction of roles. We see a distinction and a separation of responsibilities. See, what the psalmist is telling us is when we go all in on the powerful people, we will lose. When we, when we go all in, when we push all our chips in the middle of the table on anything but God, we're going to lose. We're going to fall short. We're going to be left wanting. And that's not the way that God operates. Well, why? Why, why can't we trust powerful people? Because they're limited in what they can actually do. They don't have the power. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Government is not our savior. Government's not our savior. That's God's role. We shouldn't mix those two things. The way we talk about this in our country, in the United States, is, is the separation between church and state. I wonder how you feel when you hear that phrase. When I stand up here and say, the separation of church and state, how do you feel? Probably depends on your political persuasion. Right? If, we were to, if we were to do a poll over here, we would have people who, who think the church and state should be completely separated, should not have anything to do with each other. And we would have people over here that would say, well, the church and state is really about making sure the, um, making sure the state doesn't overwhelm and overcome the church. So we have, we, have these, we have these two different opinions. Well, we want to be informed. So as I said, I love history. And I have the mic, so you get to indulge me today. <clears throat> In 1801, the Danbury Baptist Association wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson, who was then the president of the United States. In this letter, this is what, this is what the Danbury Baptists told, said to Thomas Jefferson. Religion is a matter between God and individuals. The legitimate power of the government ending with punishing people who work ill of their neighbor. So here's what that means. This real purpose of government, and we're going to talk about this more next week, but the real purpose of government is the sword, is to function as the sword. So if someone works ill of their neighbor, if I do something to my neighbor, like that's government's job to step in. According to the Declaration of Independence, this is all in the letter. Like, I would encourage you today, if you love history, um, look up Danbury Baptist letter to Thomas Jefferson on Google today. You can read the entire thing in seven minutes. According to the Declaration of Independence, they said that religion is a privilege and a favor, not an inalienable right. And as such, so because of that, they were asking the question, so... President Jefferson, what's the role of government as it relates to the church? It's between God and individuals. Government has a role. It's not an inalienable right, which if you look at our founding documents, it's not. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Those are inalienable rights. 
See, what was happening is the Danbury Baptists were not satisfied with the church-state relationship in Connecticut. Danbury's in Connecticut. The federal government could not establish a state religion. They could not say everyone has to be Methodists or everyone has to be Presbyterians or everyone has to be Muslims. Or like the, gov- the federal government could not say that. But what was happening in some of the states is the states were doing that. Connecticut was one of those states. They were, they were putting a binding on the people and saying that there was a state religion. They wanted to hear what President Thomas Jefferson had to say about that. So he said, in part, and you can re- again, you can read this too. This is in that seven minutes. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and God, that he owes account to no one other for his faith, for, to none other for his faith or his worship. So religion is between me and God. I'm like, I'm not bound by you. I don't have to tell you what I believe. That the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law restricting an establishment of religion or prohibiting a free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between the church and state. So there's the phrase. So what Thomas Jefferson says, the first amendment to the constitution says the government cannot create a law that establishes either a state government or that, yeah, that, that, sorry, I lost my thought, a state religion. And they also can't prevent you from worshiping God. That's, that's government's role. According to Thomas Jefferson, who wrote part of the constitution of the United States. So we can probably like go with his answer. Right? So what does all of that, what does all that mean? The founders were afraid of the tyranny of the majority. Founders were afraid of the tyranny of the majority. So that's how they wrote their documents. For Jefferson, the government was limited to actions. So if I do something wrong, the government can punish me. Are you following along with me on that? The government is not allowed opinions. This is so crucial for us. I wonder if this is how you've, like, if you've ever thought about church and state. The phrase has been thrown around a lot over the last seven months, hasn't it? See, government cannot name a state religion and it cannot prohibit us from living out a religion. If you were to drill everything down of Thomas Jefferson, he's saying that government has a role in society and the church has a role in society and they are separate and they are distinct and they cannot match And history is filled of times when the church and state have been one that did not go very well. So what does the Bible have to say? Like, I love Tom. Okay, I love America. Who cares what Thomas Jefferson says? What does the Bible have to say? As Christians, see, the Bible is our authority. 
And we live here and we live in the United States and we're bound by the Constitution. So it matters what that says. But what does the Bible say? Let's go to Genesis chapter 9. While you're turning there, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. You should be able to find chapter 9 pretty quickly. Let's uh, catch up. So in the beginning, God makes everything out of nothing. So while you're turning to Genesis chapter 9, God makes everything out of nothing. And he tells Adam and Eve to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion over it. So again, if we read through the lines here, what, what God is telling Adam and Eve is to govern creation, to subdue it, to rule over creation, to govern it. They're to govern it like he would, in fact. But they rejected God's plan. Eve ate whatever fruit they weren't supposed to eat of. And that set all of mankind on the trajectory in which we now live. Sin is pervading and surrounding us. And in chapter four of Genesis, the fruit of this self-rule comes to fruition when Cain murders Abel. And years later, God floods the earth. This is right before chapter nine. Noah comes off and God gives Noah instructions that ought to sound familiar to us. We're going to start actually at verse one. In Genesis chapter nine, then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? Reboot. All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. This is government. I've placed them in your power. I've given them to you for food, just as I've given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that, has still, that still has the lifeblood in it. And this is the part I really want you to pay attention to. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. See, this is different. God didn't tell Adam and Eve this. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Here's what God is telling Noah, essentially. Just because I gave you the right to reign as my government, you don't get to kill people like as individuals, you don't get to do that. But as a society, government has a role to bring justice. See, government is not something that we made up. As we think about all of the governments that have happened throughout history, we may have thought of some new forms But government is not something that mankind made up. This is something that's been instituted by God. See, where there's injustice, God requires something. God requires blood. The ESV says this, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. 
And from every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So what God does here is God is authorizing government to use force. That's what we see in this text. Government has the requirement to use force. But there are some guardrails, thankfully. What are those guardrails? What are the things that keep government in check? There are three. First is this. When government renders judgment, it's for the sake of justice. So think about that for a minute. When government brings judgment, it is for the sake of justice. If I stole your diamond, let's say I stole a diamond ring from you. And we went to the whole court process. And the judge says, John, you have to give the person that you stole a diamond ring, you have to give them a stick of gum and then we're all even. Is that justice? No, it's not justice. So when government renders judgment, it is for the sake of judgment. It's life for life. We did not get really much into this last year when we talked about the Ten Commandments. But listen again to Genesis 9. Listen to what it says. It says, when you take a life, a life is required. There's proportionality there. It's not if you steal from me, I get to kill you. It's life for life. It is proportionality. The punishment meets the crime. It's an idea of justice that goes into play. So our government can require us to pay taxes. Our government can enforce the speed limit. Our government can keep your employer from cheating you out of wages. Our government has the right to defend our borders from foreign invaders. Our government has the right to imprison people. All of those things in proportion with justice in mind. But see, here's the thing. We live in a fallen world. You probably noticed that. We live in a fallen, broken world in which sinful man is in charge. I want you to think about the the film and, and the video clips that you have seen over the last seven months in our country. Like, look at all of them. I'm not just telling you to pick the one that you like or pick the one that proves your political point, right? Look at, look at film and video over the last seven months in our country. How's our government doing? Do we see justice? Do our punishments always match the severity of the crime? See, what's happening right now in our culture and, and cultures around the world is I've talked before about that mirror, right? How the mirror at the gym is, is, um, is tipped up a little bit. So I look like I'm the rock when I'm not. Um, like that mirror is designed to do that. And what's happening right now is, is as we watch our country 
on TV, we're seeing a mirror that is, that is accurately, accurately reflecting back the realities of a fallen and broken world. It is crystal clear to us. It, it reveals the brokenness of our own world. And regardless of what video you watch, we are seeing the limitations of government right now. That's what we're seeing on TV is the limitations of government. So government is, is meant to render judgment for the sake of justice. Here's the second thing. Government is also supposed to build platforms for peace, order, and flourishing. That's what government is supposed to do. Build platforms for peace, order, and flourishing. Sometimes that we think, I know, like sometimes we think that government is a necessary evil. I know I live in Western Nebraska. We're probably a little more hands off on our mindset of how we want the government to treat us here in Western Nebraska than we are in other places of the world. I totally get that. And here's the thing. Someone needs to tell us what side of the road to drive on, right? It can't be a free for all. So our government is designed to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing for order, for peace. So when we all get to the four-way stop on Avenue I, we, I mean, we still don't know what we're doing when we hit a four-way stop. <laughs> but theoretically, when we get to a four-way stop, like there's a rule of the road, right? Someone has created that. We want that. Although I would submit that it doesn't make much of a difference because I hit that four-way stop every single day on my way home. So order. I want you to imagine that you own a home. You're going to upgrade your kitchen and you, you find out the project is going to cost about $20,000. And you go and you talk to your contractor and he says, um, he says that you need to get a construction permit and an inspection at the end. And then he says, well, after you ask him how much that's going to cost, and he reveals to you about $500. He says to you, but you know what? The government, they just want your money. Um, it's just a power grab. So if I were you, I just wouldn't pay that. Maybe you've had an addition on your home and you didn't get a construction permit. Have you ever thought about the purpose behind these inspections? other than to give our government more money. Have you ever thought about the purpose of these inspections? Well, I would say if you've bought a home where someone did a project and cut corners and then you paid for it, see, that's a consequence of those inspections. That's why we have them in place. Now, I had a conversation with someone the other day who I greatly respect, and this is what that person told me. Well, I don't think that's government's job. I think industry should self-regulate. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think government has no role in the inspection process. I get that. This is America. At a certain age, you can run for office and you can try and change the law and God bless you if you do it. But see, here's the thing. Even if business regulates that, if my house falls apart, like, I ought to be able to go after that contractor, right? 
And who's going to regulate that? Our government. A judge is going to be in play at some point in this process. Why is that? Because we expect our government to create systems that encourage order, justice, and flourishing. That's what we want. That's what we want out of our government. Here's here's the third thing. Here's the third guardrail. Government sets the stage for redemption. We have a system in the United States where kids go to school and learn how to read. Our government has set that up for us. If someone wants to be able to understand this book, what do they have to know how to do? They have to know how to read. See, our government has created this system. We all love healthy food. Today, I don't know what it was like in your neighborhood when you walked outside, but it smells like someone is having a campfire in my front yard. Like we want clean air, right? See, these are, these are things that, that our government does. Setting the stage for redemption. Giving us opportunity to tell people and to share people the gospel. This is, this is good. Paul tells Christians that they're to pray for kings and leaders so that we can live quiet and peaceful lives, godly and dignified. Quiet and peaceful lives, godly and dignified. And here's what that doesn't mean. That I just want to hole up in my house and watch Netflix all day. That's a quiet and peaceful life. Like government, just leave me alone so I can watch Netflix all day. See, when we have peaceful and quiet lives, we are able to tell other people the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we don't live in a chaotic society, where people fear to go to the grocery store, we have opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Every Thursday night at our house, we have a small group that meets in our house. I don't think there are any checkpoints, military checkpoints, between any of the people in my small group's house and mine. I don't think there are roving bands of thieves on my street in Gearing. See, so when when government does its role properly, we have quiet and peaceful lives. And this is good for us. You know, there's a but coming. But the government can't change the heart. The government cannot change the heart which is why God authorizes them to use force. Hear that? Government can't change our heart, and that's the reason why God authorizes them to use force. Because if you do something wrong, and this is Romans 13, we're hitting it next week. If you do something wrong, or if I do something wrong, and I, de- and I demonstrate an unchanged heart, government is bringing it. They're going to force me to change. They're going to force you to change. The government cannot make people want genuinely righteous things. They just can't. All they have is force. 
So what's the role of us? So that was the state. What's the role of us? What's the role of the church? There's about 82 million things we could talk about here. We're just going to talk about two. This is Matthew 5, 13 to 16. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is it if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. What's the role of the church? Salt and light. My little can of iodized salt here. I know there are two extremes with salt. One of those is too little salt. Too little. I love Tabasco sauce. I used to put it on everything. Um, We have a little breakfast dish that we often make at our house. And I used to put it in that. My wife does not like Tabasco sauce. And one day as we were having like, and we had like, this is probably the 64th time we've had this discussion in our 30 years of marriage. Um, I said, well, I like it. Um, you know, I like putting Tabasco in there. And she asked me why, so I told her. And then I said, then I said this, and this was my mistake. I said, don't worry, you won't taste it. <laughs> to which she said, then why are you putting it in there? (laughs) Haven't put Tabasco in it since. I think for some of us as Christians, there's no salt in our lives. No one knows. Can't be tasted, can't be seen. And then others of us others of us are nothing but salt. This is all people see. This is all they taste when they are around us. See, we want to flavor our world. We want to be a part of it. We want to be engaged with it. We want people, in a lot of ways, to miss us when we're not around. As Christians, we want want to be missed. We want to be noticed. It's not about us, it's about God. Here's the second metaphor, light. God's people are to be beacons of light. We are to be people that others want to be around. We are to be a place that people want to be. That's what it means to demonstrate light. I'm going to read this quote from one of the books I used for this 
series. It says this, the church's most powerful political word is the gospel. And the church's most powerful political testimony is being the church. There's more political power in the gospel and in being the church than there is in electing a president, installing a Supreme Court justice, or even changing a constitution. See, we're salt and we're light when we proclaim the gospel and when we live it out. We are alive at an incredible time of history. I know it doesn't feel like that because it's 2020. But we're at alive at an incredible time in history. We're here. We've been placed here by God for an amazing purpose. And it is not to set America on a course for prosperity for the next 400 years. That's not why we're here. We're here to proclaim Jesus Christ. And that transcends politics. And it transcends elections. This is what people around us need to see, hear, feel, and experience when they encounter us as Christians. It's people who have been changed by the gospel. I love the rights, roles, and powers and responsibilities that our Constitution gives us. Man, I love America. Given the choice, there's no other country I'd rather live in. But here's the thing. All of those benefits pale in comparison to what God offers us. Every single one of them. America one day, according to this psalm, America one day is going to breathe her last. And all of her great plans are going to die with her. And some of those plans are pretty good, right? Constitutional Republic, I love it. Love getting to vote. But it's going to go away. That's Psalm 146. But the Lord reigns forever. And he is inviting all of us into his kingdom, an eternal kingdom where he is worthy of praise and where there aren't people who are suffering. But there are people who are resting at the hands of a good God. See, government has a role and it's not as our savior. That job's taken. His name is Jesus. And our church has a mission, and that's to draw people to God through our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the opportunity this morning to be in your word and hear what you have for us. Pray, God, that we would, we would understand our role that we would not hand off our role to someone else. And that when our, when our government functions properly, that we would praise you for that. And when it functions improperly, we would cry out to you and desire to be a part of proclaiming you to our government. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.